<clears throat> we're actually in the third week of a little series that we're calling uh, Prayers of David. And so most of these were taken, um, are taken from the Psalms, and so um, you would rightly assume that the Psalms are poetry or they're songs, but we're actually focusing on Psalms that are really David speaking to God. And so they are um, Psalms, they are songs, but they're also prayers. And uh, we've been taking the last couple weeks, and this is the third week, that we are looking at Psalm 139. And so we don't know exactly what the background of Psalm 139 is, but it's likely that uh, it was written around a time where David was experiencing a dark night of the soul, a dark night of the soul. Not sure if any of you guys know what that terminology means, that phrase, dark night of the soul means, um, but... uh, my guess is that you'd be familiar with the feeling or familiar with the concept of something going on, going on in your life that's so painful or so hurtful, you know, feeling betrayed, feeling alone, whatever the case may be, where it's so um, terrifying that you, you almost can't sleep at night, right? You can't help but think about it all the time. And what's interesting is in the midst of Psalm 139, we see that David finds comfort, right? And again, we don't know if it's when he's being pursued by Saul. We don't know if it's after uh, or before another battle with the Philistines or the Ammonites. We don't know if it's when his own son was trying to take over the throne from him. We don't know if it was after his infidelity with Bathsheba. We don't know if it was after the death of his son. We don't know what was going on, but what we do know is that in this psalm, in this prayer of David, that David finds comfort in remembering some things about God. And so one of the things we talked about two weeks ago is that David finds comfort in the fact that God knows him, right? And in fact, what's interesting is the verses one through four talk about uh, David basically says, you know my actions, you know my words, you even know my thoughts, and yet you're still with me, you still love me. And then last week we talked about the fact that David found security and peace and comfort in remembering that God promises to be with him. And he even unpacks that. He says, you're with me when I'm in trouble. You're with me when I try to hide from you. You'll be with me even in life and in death. You're always with me. You won't leave me alone. And then today, we're going to be looking um, at the final section of Psalm 139, where David finds comfort in remembering that God not only knows him and is with him, but that God has made him. Let's jump into Psalm 139. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18 in their entirety. It's a beautiful uh, section of poetry from Scripture, a beautiful prayer of David. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would enter into this prayer of David today. And Father, I pray that um, the truths that are found um, in this passage would uh, sink down um, through our brains and actually make their way down into our hearts, that we might be comforted as well, remembering um, that you know us and that you're with us and that you've made us. So Father, I pray that you would do that through the power of your Holy Spirit in us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So throughout the years, there have been stories written where an artist or an artisan or an author um, creates a character and then falls in love with the character, right? The story of Pinocchio would be an example of that. Uh, the story of My Fair Lady would be an example of that. Weird Science from the 80s, which I do not recommend, is definitely an example of that, as is Pretty Woman from the late 80s. Uh, Perhaps the, the first narrative or story that I am familiar with anyway where this happens uh, is actually the story of Pygmalion. And so if you guys are familiar with uh, ancient Roman poetry, as I'm sure most of you are, uh, this is a, a poetry, a poem written by Ovid. And it was probably written around 45 AD, so you know, shortly after uh, Jesus died on the cross. And in it, this, uh, this, um, basically this sculptor whose name is Pygmalion, he uh, has basically sworn off relationships with women. Now, we get into the psychology of why that exactly is. We don't know for certain. But he travels to Cyprus. He travels to Cyprus. He finds um, this block of marble that's the most beautiful block of marble that he's ever seen. It's, it looks like ivory. It's so pure. And so he actually takes this, uh, this marble, and he begins to carve out of it an amazingly beautiful and perfect woman or representation of a woman. And he names her Galatea. Now, it's interesting, he's so uh, struck by her beauty that he begins to fall in love with her, so much so that he dresses her in fine clothing. He occasionally finds himself reaching out to touch her shoulder, hoping that maybe she's actually real, but of course, she's just a block of marble. Well, not too long goes by when he, again, begins more and more to fall in love with his perception of who this woman would be or maybe is, and he sends up a prayer to Aphrodite, and he basically says, would you bring uh, my marble woman to life? And so Aphrodite answers this prayer, and Galatea comes to life. Interesting story. Um, and the reality of this story is there's actually a correlation between this and the true story of how God created us, and it's actually what we see here with David. In Psalm 139, David reminds himself and us that God loves us because he has created us, because he has made us, right? You are God's work of art. It's interesting, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, we're not going to put it up there, you can just leave this slide where it is, but it's interesting, it's Genesis chapter 1, there's this poem that talks about the creation essentially, and you know, day one, God creates this, and he says it's good. And day two, he creates some more stuff. It's good. Day three, it's good. Day four, it's good. And he gets to day six where he creates man and woman. He says this is very good. In other words, mankind, man and woman, are God's crowning uh, achievements of art. And he says it's very, very good. And David 
again, reassures himself in believing and remembering and reminding himself that God loves him and that God made him, even physically. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. He says this, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And actually, the Hebrew there is this word for distinguished. And I think it means that it's not only that humans are distinguished from animals and plants and rocks, but that humans are distinguished from one another. We'll get to that in a moment. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame, my skeleton, the framework of my body was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven, embroidered together in the depths of the earth. Part of what David is saying here is he's saying, I know that you love me. I remember that because I know that you made me physically. What's interesting is that science teaches us that the chance that two people in the history of humanity would be genetically identical is one out of a number so large that I can't actually read it. I could just show it to you, but I'm not going to bother with that. It's such a small percentage that it's actually zero. So think about it another way, uh, just to paint a picture of the math, is the chance of two people being genetically identical is the same as getting heads on 6.4 million straight coin flips. Does that make sense? In other words, zero. There is not anyone else like you now or in the history of humanity. You are unique in every way. Humans actually share 99.5% of the same DNA, so that the only thing that separates human beings is that 0.5%, which actually mathematically still makes up for many millions of different base pairs in DNA. And so even identical twins, who outwardly may seem to be identical, have been shown scientifically to drastically differ at many seen and unseen levels. In other words, you are a unique work of art. You are God's unique work of art. Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is a movie called Chariots of Fire. It came out in 1981, won Best Picture. Um, I would highly recommend that you watch this movie, and I would highly recommend that you start watching it at 5 o'clock in the afternoon with a cup of coffee, because it is a little slow. But it traces the story of Eric Little, who actually um, was born in China, even though he was a, a Scotsman, his, he was the, the son of missionaries, and he was such a phenomenal athlete that he ended up running um, for the United Kingdom in the 1924 Olympics. And in the movie, there's highlighted this tension, especially with his sister, as he tries to make a decision about whether or not he's going to go be a missionary in China or if he's going to run in the Olympics. And there's this great quote where he is talking to his uh, sister Jenny in the Scottish hillsides, and he says, Jenny, I believe God made me for a purpose but he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure, right? He understood that God had made him in a distinguished and unique way, and that that unique creation that God had worked out in him was part of his purpose in life. Not only that, I think it's interesting when you think about this, you think about, yeah, but what about physical brokenness, right? It's one thing to think about some guy who runs in the Olympics, but what about me? You know, I, I struggle to, you know, run a mile. It's interesting, when we were in Gainesville, Georgia, uh, there was a little lady there, her name was Julie Reynolds, she's now passed away, but she was one of the first people we met when we moved to Gainesville, I was working at a church. And uh, Julie was maybe three feet tall, if you stood her up, which she couldn't stand up because she was in a little wheelchair. And um, it was interesting, because she was very open about some of her physical maladies. She had um, a disease that was in utero where her bones broke very easily, and so she was confined to this chair and didn't grow much. 
And, uh, and I remember talking to Julie and, uh, and her just sort of volunteering this information. And she's saying, you know, I don't really see my physical brokenness as a curse. Actually, I see it as a blessing. And I was like, you're going to have to explain that to me because this looks hard. And she said, actually, it's actually wonderful because she said all the time, you know, little kids come up to me and their parents have to run over and say, no, 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 don't, you know, don't touch her or don't whatever. And she said, but each of those times that people stare at me or they come over to me, it's always an opportunity for me to share the gospel with people. And she said, I believe that God made me this way for a purpose, right? God made her physically for a purpose. When I pray frequently with my kids at night, um, one of the things that I will say to them is I'll say, I'm so glad that God made you just the way you are, right? With your hair color, with your eye color, with your skin, with your uh, propensity for math or artistic ability, whatever it is, I'm thankful that God made you just the way he did. So what do we do with this? What is David doing with this? Part of what we remember is that God is an artist and you are actually his work of art. He loves you because he made you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Has sin impacted your body, our bodies, with disease and depression and anxiety and physical desire to consume that must be restrained? Absolutely, of course. But at your core, you're more like a painting by Rembrandt that has been damaged by time and age is on the, and is on the journey of being brought to a future glory that only God can see. God loves you because he made you. You are his work of art. David reminds himself of this in Psalm 139, he says, I know that you love me because you made me. The second thing we see in this uh, Psalm 139 is that not only does David reassure himself that God loves him because he made him physically, but he even says, I know that you made me emotionally. So let's look at verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And so the words that we translate inmost being there actually in Hebrew is the word for kidneys, right? And so you may be like BP, that translation doesn't work for me. But in Hebrew, that was sort of like our heart. It's the way we would talk about our heart. And part of what David is saying there is, I know you created my heart. You created the heart, which is the seat of, of my emotions and my passions and my desires and my personality is what David is saying. And so all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a discussion of, you know, this whole discussion of nature versus nurture, right? And so in terms of nurture or context, we realize, yeah, but our context matters in terms of our personality and our passions and our giftings, right? Whether you're the middle child or the oldest child or the youngest child, whether you came from a home that was chaotic or a home that was peaceful, a home that had to deal with a lot of tragedy early in life, you know, or one that didn't. Like all those things shape how we cope, the decisions that we make around life. But the research also is very clear that we come out of the womb with a distinct personality makeup, right? Introversion extroversion, all these different kind of things. I didn't even really know there was a category as introvert until I was probably 23. Um, I, I, I'm embarrassed to admit this now, but I think I thought that people who were quiet or who were introverted, I think I thought they were shy probably, that they were fearful in public settings. And it wasn't until uh, we did some personality testing in seminary that I realized that there was this entire category of people, 50% in fact, that are actually wired this way. They like to think, right? They like quiet. They like calm, right? They don't like uh, chatting and making small talk necessarily. There's actually a TED Talk in a book by a woman named Susan Cain. Her book is Quiet, the Power of Introverts in a World that Can't Stop Talking. Great title. And she actually talks about, you know, some of the giftedness of, of, uh, of introverts. I'm going to read a little, little section here. She says, 
It says this, Cain defines introversion and extroversion in terms of preferences for different levels of stimulation. Various schools of psychology define introversion differently. Cain's definition is that introverts have a preference for a quiet, more minimally stimulating environment. Introverts tend to enjoy quiet concentration, listen more than they talk, and think before they speak. Still working on that one. And have a more circumspect and cautious approach to risk. Introverts think more, are less reckless, and focus on what really matters, relationships and meaningful, meaningful work. In other words, um, part of what the reason I say this is to say that God makes people with particular emotional differences because the world needs them. In 1517, there was something that happened called the Reformation. Maybe you guys have heard of this, maybe not. Um, but essentially, if you grew up in a church that was Baptist uh, or Presbyterian or Methodist or, or just wasn't Catholic, then you're basically part of a Reformed tradition, even whether you know it or not. But in 1517, this guy named Martin Luther basically looked at all these evils in the Catholic Church, not unlike part of what's happening today. He looked at all these evils of the Catholic Church, and he posted 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg door, and it basically caused, caused this giant split in Christendom, where for the longest time, Protestants and Catholics were literally physically at war in uh, any number of different times with one another. But what's interesting is Luther had this personality that was more than willing to pick a fight, right? He was a little bit like William Wallace in Braveheart. So he was more than willing to pick a fight. And after he sort of nailed these 95 theses to the door, everything blew up. And what's interesting is there's a figure that came after Luther that not as many people know about, but his name was Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon. And there's a little saying that says this, Luther broke the pot, but Melanchthon put it back together. So Luther was probably a raging extrovert. He probably spoke before he thought, probably all sorts of things. And he, he was necessary for that time and place, but it was also necessary for Melanchthon in his quiet, cautioned, and disciplined thought to come after Luther and to put everything back together again. They needed one another, right? And the reason I think it's important to see this is because our tendency is really to judge people who are different than we are, Right? Uh, one of the things that we'll do next weekend when we have Curious in our great room next door is we'll go over the mission, vision, and values of Seven Hills Fellowship. And uh, one of the things that I did for years um, as I would go through this process with people who were entering into the church is under our values, I would say, you know, this is value number one, this is value number two. And, uh, and then at the end, I would say, hey, I just need to let you know that every family, every organization has values, whether they're stated clearly or unstated. And oftentimes the unstated values are more powerful even than the stated ones. And so I asked people regularly, I said, hey, what's an unstated value of Seven Hills Fellowship? And one of the ones that they said over and over again was something to this effect, human dignity. Or in other words, um, human beings have dignity because they're created in God's image. That's exactly what Psalm 139 is talking about here. And so here at Seven Hills Fellowship, whether you agree with us or not about spiritual things, um, or even if people disagree politically or socially in all these ways, we want to treat everyone with respect and dignity because they're created in God's image. And so some of you in this room this morning are wired to be engineers, and you're gifted with seeing what could go wrong and how it can be prevented and how certain problems can be solved. And the world needs you in all of your engineering-ness. God made you that way. Some of you are introverts, like we just talked about a moment, and God has made you that way for a purpose. The world, your children, your spouse, all need you to be who God created you to be. Some of you are artists, and God wants you to bring beauty and truth into his 
world, but you need to remember that God created you and that other person for a purpose, and you need to embrace and cherish who God created you and them to be because you are God's work of art. He made you, and he loves you physically, emotionally. And then finally, what we see in this passage is that God, that David reassures himself that God loves him by remembering that God continues to make him. In other words, God is not done yet. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I've told this before, but I'll tell it again. Uh, This has always probably been one of my favorite psalms. Um, And 18 plus years ago, my son Sam Pierce uh, was born. And it's a long story, um, but... uh, a little bit after he was born, he was involved with a choking incident when I think he was like 10 months old. And uh, it was really terrifying, really scary. We had to drive down to Erlanger Hospital in Chattanooga, and our little 10-month-old son was coughing up blood and choking. It was horrible. And when we got to the emergency room, they rushed us past all the broken arms and all the stitches and all the colds back into sort of the, the bowels of the emergency room. And these doctors came in, and they were sort of, you know, they had his mouth pried open. And again, he's, you know, coughing up blood, scary. Across the hall, there were alarms going off, and there was a little bitty baby with RSV. It was just, you know, terrifying and frightening. And in the midst of all of this, you know, mayhem and chaos and the thought of losing our son, all of a sudden into my mind flooded the words, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And I had to sit for a minute and I had to think, like, what is that, where is that coming from? And it was the words of Psalm 139, and what I remember thinking specifically as I stood there in the emergency room as these doctors were, you know, hovering over Sam, and Krista and I were sort of standing in terror and fear on the edge of the room, and I remember thinking, God, if you gave us 10 months with him, or 10 years, or 100 years, uh, I know that all the days ordained for my son were written in your book of life before one of them came to pass. And it gave me this bizarre sense of peace, which I think is exactly why David talks about it here in Psalm 139. He remembers that God's got a purpose, right? That he's still in process, that God's still making him. Think about the story of, of Paul uh, slash Saul, the, the, you know, the Paul that persecuted Christians. On the Damascus Road, he was uh, struck blind by God, had an encounter with Jesus. Then he's arrested, he's beaten, he's blackballed by his fellow Jews. And then he talks about this whole process in 2 Corinthians 12, where he says this, therefore, and he talks about God's purpose for all this suffering in his life. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited or becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. In other words, what Paul realizes there, he says, I realize that God is still working on me, right? He's still making me into the man that he needs me to be, even using suffering as sanctification. C.S. Lewis addresses this in Mere Christianity. He says this, he says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. 
You knew those jobs, that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. It's a great picture of C.S. Lewis saying here, God is making you into something that is more glorious and more wonderful than you even realize. So the question for all of us in this room this morning for you is how is God shaping you? How is he creating you to be the woman or the man that he desires for you to be? If you are a child living in someone's home right now, part of you need to, what you need to realize is that God's put you in that context for a reason. He's using that home to make you, whether it's a good home or even a bad home. Sometimes people that come from homes that are chaotic and filled with suffering, God ends up using that suffering in their lives to make them wonderful, wonderful people that understand suffering and hurt and hardship and relational dynamics in ways that people who grew up in easy homes don't, right? Some of you have recently gone to college at Shorter or at Barry. You need to understand that this is a process by which God is making you. How are you going to respond to homesickness or loneliness or anonymity, right? God is making you. For many of us, it's marriage, right? God has placed us with a, a husband or with a wife. And let me tell you, there's a lot of uh, new wings being thrown out and new floors and turrets being run up in marriage and in parenting, right, in every relationship. And of course, in suffering. If Jesus was made perfect through suffering, how much more so will we be? So at the end of all this, what we see David saying is, he says, I take comfort. I remember that you love me because you made me physically. You made me emotionally, and you continue to make me. I think what I would leave you with today is a reminder that the gospel is both vertical and it's horizontal. It's vertical if you guys have ever heard this gospel presentation before, this idea that Brian talked about today, he talked about the fact that God created us and that we sinned and that uh, God didn't give up on us. He sent his son so that those who would have faith in his son and repent of their sin would be brought back into a relationship with God. That's one of the ways in which we think about the gospel. But there's another way that we think about the gospel, and it's this idea of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and even consummation. And it's the horizontal understanding of the gospel. It's basically that there is something wrong with humanity. There is something wrong with you. There is something wrong with the relationships you've been in, whether it's your parents uh, or friendships, whatever they are, there is brokenness within you. But what we see in this passage is part of what David is saying is, I know that you continue to make me into the woman or into the man that you desire me to be because you love me, right? God doesn't love you because you're beautiful like Pygmalion. He makes you beautiful because he loves you. You are God's work of art. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I pray that we would um, remember and be reminded and believe um, that you love us because you have made us. Um, that at the very beginning when you created humanity, that you declared that it was very good. Father, that we are uniquely created in your image and so we are engineers and we are artists and we are authors and we're relational. Uh, Father, I, I pray that you would help us uh, to embrace the image of God 
in us. And Father, I pray that where we are broken and where we are polluted by sin, I pray, Father, that we would lay down um, on uh, the table uh, in the room with the doctor, with you, and that we would allow you to go to work in us. Father, we pray that you would remove our sin. We pray that you would remove um, our false selves and our personas and our coping mechanisms so that rather than finding our strength in any of those things, we find our strength and our identity and our security in the fact that we are your children. So, Father, we pray all these things today, trusting in you, our good, good Father, and in your Son, Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.